Matthew 28, sorry, in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God, thank you for your words to us here. Thank you for your purpose for the world, for your glory, for our good. Thank you for your purposes being worked in and through our lives. We ask that that would be real for us. We pray that you would give us a desire to obey you in your purposes, in your commission, in your command for us to go to the nations. We pray that we would have vision for that and zeal for that, that we would be useful in the hands of the Lord for the glory of Jesus. Please help me as I teach and preach. I humble myself before you and this beloved church. I ask that you fill me with the Holy Spirit to preach faithfully. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we already did a part one of the Great Commission here. We called it the Great Suggestion because we often take it as such, though it isn't. And in part one, we looked at a lot of the details, but the the main point that we got from the text is that in this, at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is inviting us into his work, into his mission, into his purposes in the world because he loves us, not because he needs us, But because he loves us, he invites us into the passion of his heart. Because that's what we do with people that we love. We invite them into the things that we're passionate about. And Christ has, in the Great Commission, invited us into this great work of his. He intends to include us. He's chosen to work through us rather than independent of us, again, because he loves us. But we also brought out in that teaching... That the Great Commission is to be taken seriously because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it in his glory and in his glorious mission. That Revelation 7 vision of every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne, healed and in glory, giving all glory to Jesus, worshiping him. Jesus is worth it because of who he is. He's the king of kings and his mission is worth it. And so therefore, we take the Great Commission seriously. It has to be for us more than a suggestion. God is not saying to us, if you're not too busy with work and play and other things, maybe you might be involved in my kingdom work of saving people. He's actually commanding us here. And he's doing authoritatively. After the resurrection, he says, all authority has been given to me in case there's some uncertainty here, guys. I'm risen from the dead. I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. It is a command. And we historically as a church call it the Great Commission because it seems to be a commissioning. It seems that Jesus is not only claiming authority for himself, but it seems that he is also then delegating it to his followers. All authority has been given unto me, therefore you go. So he has authorized us to act on his behalf in the world. That's what it means to be commissioned, to be given authority to act on behalf of another. Jesus in this text is authorizing us as followers to act on his behalf in the world. In the book of John, he said it in in a unique way in one moment where he appeared to the disciples. He used the the language of, of sending a little more directly. He says this in the book of John, or it says this, 
So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is the day Christ was resurrected. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Here's what I want you to hear. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, in conjunction with the Great Commission, as the Father has sent me, I also have sent you. The Father sent him into the world with the truth of the gospel, with the work of the kingdom. In the same way, Jesus has sent us. So part of our self-understanding as Jesus followers, as Christians, is that we're supposed to see ourselves as sent people. We are quite literally sent ones. And we're supposed to understand our lives as having a sense of sentness. Get that? I I want you to hear that. A sense of sentness. And much of the tragedy of modern American Christianity is many of us have lost or never laid hold of our sense of sentness. We failed to see ourselves as people sent by Jesus into the world on mission for his glory and the good of people through the gospel. So we've never laid hold of, or we've lost at some point, our sense of sentness. We might say it another way, our sense of ultimate purpose in the world, our usefulness in the world for the kingdom of God, for the glory of the king. And so part of what I want for us to happen in the Great Commission in the book of Acts is that we would recapture our scent of sentness. We would see ourselves as participants, not merely pew potatoes. We would see ourselves as included, not merely spectators in God's work. Because that is exactly what Jesus intends here at the end of the Gospels. To send us into the world in his name according to his purposes, because he loves us. Again, love always includes. The challenge to that I find in my life is my own selfishness, my own agenda, my own ideas, the things I want to do, my kingdom that I'm building. That's what keeps me back from, that's what holds me back, excuse me, from fully laying hold of my sentness and all of its implications. Because i got some of my own things I want to do, God, and I'm pretty busy with them. But we must realize that God is big, and God is good, and God loves you as his beloved sons and daughters. And he's able to sweep up the whole of your life and all its beautiful, awesome, messy little things into his purposes. It's not a hard bifurcation that you can either have, you know, You can either live your life or you live for Christ and and not or both. He has called you as who you are with all the implications of your life, the good, bad, and the ugly. The invitation is to let him begin to come and work through your life as who you are with what you have and who you know to accomplish his purposes. And there are two ways to understand our sentness on a broad scale, two ways. We can think about our sentness with the truth of Jesus into the world, both locally and globally. Our sentness as locally and globally. Jesus said in the Great Commission that they were to preach the gospel from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. So from where they were, their local place, 
all the way to the end of the world. Locally and globally is our sense in this. And it's not supposed to be a hard bifurcation. It's not supposed to be an either or. You know, I'm either doing it locally, I'm doing it globally, I'm not doing one, I'm, I'm not doing the other. We should be living out our sentness for Jesus Christ as witnesses for him, both here and there. What did Jesus say in verse 19? Make disciples of all nations. So here is really important. This is where we live. This is where the people that we love are. This is where we play out our lives. Here is really important. But there is also really important. Maybe not that important to you, but it's pretty important to God. For God so loved the world, all there, that he sent his only son. And Jesus says we need to be willing to go there as well as live out mission here. And both are important. Our local sentness is really important. To reiterate, God wants to use you right now as who you are, amongst who you know, with what you have, with what you lack, within your sphere of influence, with your current resources. Mission is not some future endeavor. Maybe I'll get there. Maybe I'll go there. It's what God has for you here with who you are. And there's no sense in which you need to be on some trajectory of holiness before God could use you. Have you ever read the Bible? God uses the most jacked up people imaginable. I mean, read it through that lens sometime. There's not a good dude or gal amongst them. One or two gals, but there's not a good dude amongst them. Very much like us. It's not that God doesn't care about sanctification. It's not that there isn't an ongoing work of sanctification. There is. But it's not as though you need to attain to some place before God has purposes for your life. He likes using us jacked up folks. So local mission is incredibly important. That's just, you know, where we work, where we play, our family, so on and so forth. But again, there is important. And someone, church, has got to go there. Someone's got to be willing to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. For Romans says this in chapter 10. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as the community of faith, as a church, we want to be intentional and, and purposeful about there. Sending people there. Going there. As we talked about Peter and Tammy Russell, who decades ago went there. All the way into Africa to serve the Lord. But also as a church, we want to be specific about there. Because there's a lot of there out there, wouldn't you agree? We want to be specific about there. Our thoughts lately have been formed by what Paul said in Romans 15. My ambition has always been to preach the good news, the gospel, where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard about him will understand. So Paul was saying, look, here's what I want to do. I want to take the gospel where people have not heard the name of Jesus. 
And that is increasingly becoming our concern. We have been a church for 14 and a half years now. And in 14 and a half years, we've sent about 270 missionaries to almost 50 countries around the world. But we realize that there are still 6,000 people groups in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. 40% of the world's population lives in unreached people groups. So there's a lot of people in the world that still need to hear the name of Jesus. So we're starting to feel by the leading of the Holy Spirit a little bit strategic about our global missions. And what seems strange to us, maybe you didn't know this, is that of the world's missionary force, over 90% of them are being sent to places that have already had the gospel go to them, already have churches, already have Bibles in their languages, already have Christian movements happening there. Over 90% of all the world's missionary forces are going to people who have already heard. Now that's not necessarily bad. There's always a need for missionaries everywhere, even in our own community, right? But what about the people who currently have no opportunity to hear? There's no Christian movements there. There's no churches there. There's no Holy Scriptures, none of the Bible in their translations. We're beginning to wonder and worry, so to speak, about that. Because our understanding of Scripture tells us that Jesus has given us a task to complete, Remember this from Matthew 24? Jesus said, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, all the nations, as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So whatever you think about eschatology, however you think it might end, is not going to end until all nations have heard the good news about Jesus. So if Jesus, our Lord, the King of Kings, has given us a task, we should probably be thinking like, okay, well, let's, let's be serious about that task. And, and let's see what remains to be done. And of the 17,000 or so people groups in the world, about 6,000 of them still remain unreached. Again, 40% of the world's population in those unreached people groups. So our goal as a church, long-term goal, and we've never had long-term goals really until now. Long-term, I mean like, you know, a couple decades is to send families and teams and people to the least reached places in the world. While still being mindful of the other ways that we are ascending church. Reality understands itself as a sending church, right? And we send in three ways. Locally ascent people, right? That's equipping each other to do the work of the mission right here as who we are with who we know. Strategically through church planting, We're still going to do that in places like uh, Honolulu and San Francisco and LA, places where there's already churches. We still see the value and sense of call on that. But then globally through missions to the unreached. So we're making progress in that. We're, We're training people. We have a team getting ready to go to the Arabian Peninsula. As you know, we've been talking to you a bit about that. But this undertaking of making disciples of all the nations is enormous in whatever form it takes. So the plea I want to make at the end of the Great Commission here is this, that we would all be involved in some way with the gospel going to the nations. Not with like degrees of separation where like, yeah, I attend reality and they do it, so I'm involved some way. Yeah, maybe some way, but can there be a better way? Can we be a little more directly involved? Not neglecting local mission, 
not negating that, not devaluing that, but also giving some intention as individuals and as a whole organization together to reaching the unreached. And there's a few ways we can get involved in that. We talked about today, we have the Global Prayer Network once a month after the services we meet right up here at the front of the stage to pray, right? You can, be get, you can get involved in the sending of people, training, loving, caring for them. You connect with our sending team here at the church. Uh, we can give, we can give to this endeavor. It's a huge endeavor. And some of you, some of us are actually supposed to go. Some of you are take, to take the example of the book of Acts and great missionaries throughout time and the example of people like Peter and Tammy Russell, the example like Merrill and Teresa in South America who have given their lives long-term decades to going to a place where the gospel hasn't been and introducing Jesus. Some of you, are called to do that. And maybe 2018 would be the year where we take seriously praying about that, just asking the Lord. Not everyone could go, obviously, right? Someone's got to stay here and be on mission. But I think more people are called to go than are saying yes. Would you just take this prayer challenge? Would you just begin to ask the Lord this year if he has purposes for you amongst the nations? And if you're not supposed to go, can you get involved in sending? Through training, through equipping, through loving, through giving, through praying? Because this is a big long-term goal for our church. And so all of us will need to be involved in some way. Again, because it's the passion of Jesus. And Jesus is worth it. And he's called us to do it with him because he loves us. And then let's also this year, you know, give careful attention to our local sentness. Being more engaged with the community as a church, being more engaged and intentional in our workplaces and amongst our families. Now, one of the things that the book of Acts will teach us is that Christians are not merely need-driven. There's a million needs all around us all the time. And we could simply begin to say, okay, I, I got to live life on mission, so I'm just going to go start to meet needs wherever they are. And dude, you're going to burn yourself out. Even Jesus went to bed at night in Israel without healing every leper in Israel. Right? We can't merely be need-driven. The book of Acts is going to teach us that we can be call-driven and led by the Holy Spirit. But that starts with asking. So what have you just started to ask this year? Jesus, what are you doing around me? What are you doing in my family? What are you doing in my workplace? What are you doing in my school? What are you doing with the people that I surf with every day? Jesus, what are you up to that I might in some meaningful, intentional way join with that? And the book of Acts is exactly that. It's the followers of Jesus waiting for Jesus to lead them into their community and into the world on mission. The book of Acts is a continued story of what Jesus did and how the first Christians lived out the command to go and make disciples of the whole world. And the book of Acts is crazy. When we get into the book of Acts, we're going to see supernatural power. We're going to see violent demons Magical handkerchiefs, physical teleporting, death by sword, people getting stoned, and I mean with rocks, arrests, trials. (laughs) You guys are not that quick, really. 
arrests, trials, and prison breaks, healings and resurrections, sorcerers, angels, and visions, riots and mobs, collusion with corrupt governments, religious conspiracies, amazing journeys, big fights, shipwrecks, snake bites, and true love. The book of Acts is like the princess bride. It is an unbelievable saga of a great thing happening. And all the while in the book of Acts, we will see the sovereignty of God in the midst of all of that. Accomplishing his purposes from Jerusalem, we'll trace it, all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. So turn now to Acts chapter 1, as we dip in just a little bit. Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It says in the first verse, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, let's just talk about a couple of those things. First of all, the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. Luke will show up often in the book of Acts when you hear the pronoun we or us or our. He accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys. So he's writing to a large degree a first-hand account of the gospel going from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke is writing this. Of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of Scripture. He references in verse 1 his first account. He's saying, I've already written something else, and this is a sequel to it. Anybody know what the first account was? Oh, you guys are so sleuthy. It was Luke. Luke's first account was the Gospel of Luke. And and the, 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 the two were originally in the early churches together. He would have written it on scrolls of papyrus paper. Each book was probably about 35 feet long if you unrolled it. And oftentimes the two were sewn together and as they were copied, they traveled together in the early churches. Later on, the church said, well, we like all these four accounts of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to cut the seam here of Luke and Acts, and we're going to keep all the Gospels together, and Acts became its own thing. But it was originally written as a sequel to the book of Luke. And look how the book of Luke uh, starts, because this gives us some hints as to how Luke is writing in Acts. He says, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. There's that guy again. 
so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts originally to this guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means lover of God or loved by God. It can be taken either way in the Greek, lover of God or loved by God. And so some of that thinks that Luke, some people then think that Luke was just addressing this to Christians in general, the beloved of God. And that's possible. But there in Luke, he uses the phrase most excellent. So that usually denotes a specific person of high standing within a community. So it seems that he was writing to some guy of high standing in some community named Theophilus, who obviously was intending to learn about Jesus. And Luke is helping him out here. And Luke, who was a physician, we know from the book of uh, Acts, is also a historian. And he's writing, he says there in those verses, a historical account. He says, I investigated everything carefully. I talked to eyewitnesses, people who were on the ground, people who were with Jesus, people who saw it. He says, and I wrote it out consecutively, like a historical account, he says in verse 3, to communicate the exact truth about Jesus to you. So we can see Luke's approach here, right? Investigation, consecutive historical accounts, the exact truth just as it happened. And we're going to find that he has the same approach in the book of Acts. That's exactly what's going on in the book of Acts. Some throughout church history have uh, intended to undermine the authority and the validity and the truth of the New Testament by going through the book of Acts, retracing some of the steps and pointing out errors. Those who have done so have come to the conclusion that Luke the historian is a historian of the highest degree of integrity that his accounts of what happened after the resurrection of Jesus with the church stand up to the most intense scrutiny. And so he tells us the continuing work of Jesus in the world through his people. And he says that in a very interesting way. Notice what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, I'm writing to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. I want you to remember forever that phrase all that Jesus began to do and teach. I want you to remember forever that phrase, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Here's why that's important. In the English language, it seems to us like we might take it in the past tense. We might kind of read it as uh, Luke saying, I'm writing to you about everything that Jesus did and taught. But that is not what he's saying. In the Greek language, which was the original that Luke was writing in, It is in the imperfect tense as a verb. That means that it is a continuous, ongoing action that he's speaking about. So quite literally, and what he intended to say, Luke, is I'm writing to you about everything that Jesus did and taught and is continuing to do and teach and will continue to do and teach. He's telling us something astounding here. That after Christ's resurrection to heaven and glory, he did not stop his ministry. And what we have in the Gospels is only the beginning of the story. Acts tells us the work of Jesus, his doing and his teaching is continuing. And in specific, it's continuing through his apostles. This is important for our sense of sentness and understanding our lives and mission. We call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, but as the video pointed out, it would better be called the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles, perhaps. Because Jesus began and is 
doing these things. So the Gospels were what Jesus began to do. The book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do through his followers, or said differently, what they did in response to him and his call to mission. And my hope for us in the book of Acts is that we would more than ever take seriously the call of God upon our lives to be engaged in his purposes, to invite him into our lives just as they are now, into our recreation, into our families, into our messes, into the stuff that we do, into the stuff that we will do, and begin to live for a greater purpose. I find that I always slide towards selfishness. Does that surprise you? Not if you know me. Are you like that at all? Most of you are liars. Because uh, most of you didn't say yes. We generally tend to slide towards selfishness. The great commission that was given to us that we looked at, and the book of Acts are given to us to save us from selfish salvation. To keep us from becoming bottleneck Christians. Where, well, I became a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and that's cool, so I'm just going to live that out, and everybody else be Whatever. The call of Jesus lovingly is meant to save us from that. His purposes for our lives are bigger than our own. Again, he's big enough to use what you're doing right now for his glory. The important thing to understand about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts continues to be written, so to speak. Acts is an ongoing thing because Jesus is still on mission in the world. In our community, to the uttermost ends of the earth, where you live, Jesus is still on mission. So the book of Acts is continuing to be written through you is what is supposed to be happening. And the orders that it says he gave to his apostles in verse 2 are that very thing, the great commission. And we want to take a careful look at how Jesus' followers carried those out in the years immediately after his resurrection. And one of the things that we're supposed to get right at the outset here, I'm sure you're beginning to get it, is they weren't meant to do it in their own strength or with their own ideas. This is also important for us to remember for our lives. We're supposed to live for the purposes of Jesus, but never in our own strength and never in our own ideas. We're supposed to have the power of the person of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit as we endeavor to live life on mission. And what we are going to see in the book of Acts is that nobody ever did anything apart from those things. What the apostles did was they, they waited to receive power from the Spirit and they waited to receive leading from the Spirit. Therefore, they moved in exactly what God wanted to do. Look at verses 4 and 5, where Jesus says something that seems contradictory to what he just said. He said at the end of Matthew, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And then he says to them, at the continuation, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. You, You see that juxtaposition? I want you to go to the ends of the world, but wait. Don't go yet. Wait for what the Father had promised which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What we're going to discover and what I hope we will lay hold of as a church to a really faithful, biblically faithful degree is the way that the Holy Spirit figures prominently in the life of Christians. 
The book of Acts might be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Probably we should call it the Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles, but that's rather verbose. But the Holy Spirit figures prominently in what happens in the book of Acts. In fact, Luke was intentional to introduce him in verse 2. Notice what, what, what Luke says about the great commission that was given to them. He says, he gathered them together. He gave them those orders by this Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that means. Jesus gave them the orders by the Holy Spirit. That should be some intrigue right from the second verse. Like, wait, all of a sudden this, the Holy Spirit's involved in a new way. It didn't necessarily come to us that way in the Gospels. All of a sudden, what Jesus said was by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth, but I don't want you to do a darn thing until you have received the Holy Spirit. Until you've been baptized, more properly said, in the Holy Spirit. So because the Holy Spirit figures so prominently in the book of Acts, here's our plan in the coming weeks. We're going to just take this, especially the first couple chapters through Acts, as a real slow roll, and we're going to do some deep dives into the things of the Holy Spirit. What the scriptures have to say about the Holy Spirit. So we'll like teach some text, and then the next week we'll do a little excursus, right? We'll do a little deep dive into a particular topic. Like next week, we'll do a deep dive into the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus just referenced, what that means. The week after that, we'll do a deep dive into the filling of the Holy Spirit, what that means. The week after that, we're going to do a deep dive into the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not an it. He's a person. He's a third person of the Trinity. What can we learn about the Holy Spirit personally as who he is as a third person of the Holy Trinity? The week after that, we'll do a deep dive on the general work of the Holy Spirit. So we're really going to try to get some solid theological underpinnings as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, that we might live a robust, faithful, full Christian life in the Spirit as we witness that in Acts. In addition to that, we're going to have some special Tuesday night meetings starting a week from this Tuesday, Tuesday the 16th. We're just going to have these Tuesday nights where we come and we worship and we pray and we wait on the Spirit. Just to get, yeah, praise God. This section over here, they're juiced. They're ready for it. Just a time to wait on the Lord and see what the Spirit might want to do. I just think as a church, we need to get kind of reconnected with the person and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we'll just take some time to do that. We'll spend seven weeks. We'll wait on the Lord. We'll pray. We'll worship a little bit. It's probably going to get like creepy and all this stuff, but we'll keep it biblical and we'll just see what the Lord might want to do in our midst and hopefully get more on fire for the glory of Christ and live out his purposes more faithfully. So that'll start a week from this Tuesday, January 16th. But the basic point of the opening couple chapters here of the book of Acts is that Jesus' followers were going to need supernatural enabling to carry out his mission. They were going to need power from on high to do what he was calling them to do. And Jesus tells us right there in those verses that we looked at, Acts 1, 4, and 5 again, that both he and the Father were sending the person of the Holy Spirit upon the church. He calls it the Father's promise. He and the Father were going to send the person of the Holy Spirit upon the church, and they were to wait for it for the day of Pentecost. But I want you to notice what they already had in their waiting. 
it's evident that the disciples already had passion for Christ was risen. They already had passion for Jesus and who he was. In their minds, Jesus was worth it. They already had purpose. He'd given them the marching orders. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So they already had passion. They already had purpose. And they had intent, meaning they intended to obey the way that Jesus said they ought to live in this world, to be in the world, not of the world. They had intent before the Holy Spirit ever came. The followers of Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what he did, already had passion, purpose, and intent. Now, we need the power. We need the power of the Holy Ghost to come upon us in new, wonderful ways that we might live faithful and fruitful lives of Jesus. But we also need the intention to obey. We need to, each one of us, confront our own selfishness, our own kingdom building, our own agendas, We need the intent to obey what Jesus might be calling us to do. And I think we will wonderfully discover that what Jesus is calling us to do is awesome. Man, so many people in this life will get to the end and regret it. I will posit to you that you will never regret obeying Jesus. You will never regret obeying Jesus. I have so many regrets in my life. Obeying Jesus is not one of them. And don't forget that through our lives, the book of Acts is meant to continue to be written. And I just want to finish here in two minutes by inspiring us to remember that Jesus is actually on mission in the world. Because you know what? Let's be honest. You, sometimes you, you like live in America and you watch the news and you just go through your life here and it doesn't always seem like Jesus is on radical mission. But the scriptures tell us that he is. And it doesn't always seem like the kingdom is going forward. And we don't hear that much about it here. You know what we hear a lot about? We hear a lot about the spread of terrorism. We hear a lot about the growth of the economy in China. We hear about the increase of the nuclear threat. We hear about the rise of secularism, the the, the robust growth of consumerism but we don't hear a lot about how the church is growing. In fact, what we hear is that in America and in the Western world, the church is shrinking. And that may actually be true in America and in the Western world. But you know where that's not true? That is not true in the whole world. For God so loved the whole world. It is not true that Christianity is not growing in the whole world. In fact, Christianity is kicking butt in the whole world. I want to tell us that we are living at the time of an unprecedented move of God among the lost. Did you know these couple of facts? You don't know this. Let me tell you this. More people have followed Christ in the last 100 years than in all previous centuries combined. Did you know that? Listen to this one. There are more people alive today who call themselves Christians than in all of the previous generations combined. And look at this one. One out of every seven people in the world are now active Christians. One out of every seven. Do you know that when the book of Acts ended, it was one out of every 360 people? 
There's been tremendous growth in Christianity in the world as Jesus said there would be. And here's what I want us to get. Most of that has happened in our lifetime. Class, look at this chart. I'll get out my little pointer. I've showed you this chart before. Uh, Let's see if my pointer works. No, it doesn't work. Let's see if my pointer works. Yes, it works. Okay, so I know it's hard to see this chart, but you can read the thing on top. This is uh, a chart of practicing Christians as a percentage of the total population since 1900. And the top line is 14%. The bottom is zero. Uh, This, what is that, the x-axis? I don't know how that works. Uh, Right there is the year 1900. At the end is 2010. I want you to notice the way that Christianity has grown in the world as a percentage of total world population since 1900. It's gone from 2%, a little more than 2%, to about 12% in 2010. I want you to notice how much of that has happened in our lifetime. Do you see the steep climb here? You know when that happened? You know when this year is right there? 1970. I was born in 72. I'm not saying there's a correct correlation. I'm not saying that. But it's interesting. It's interesting to me. But look, it took... From, from the beginning of the church to 1900, it took 1,800 years. 1,800 years for Christianity to grow to 2% of the world's population. In just 70 years, it went from 2.5% to 5%. It doubled. It doubled until just in 70 years, till 1970. From 1970 until 2010, it went from 5% to 12%. It more than doubled in our lifetime. I just want to tell you from the hard, warm facts that Jesus is up to something wonderful in our lifetime. His work is continuing to unfold. And I think that we're near the point of completion. I think we could finish the task and take the gospel to every last unreached people group in our lifetime. I think we could do it in our lifetime. Jesus is at work and I don't want to sit on the sidelines because of my selfishness. I don't want to miss the work of his kingdom to build my own kingdom. I don't want to live out of fear. I want to live out of faith in who Christ is and what he's done. He already said to us a long time ago in Matthew 9, he saw the people, he felt compassion to them. They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. It's the workers that are few. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's be a church that does that. God, we beg you to send workers into your harvest. We believe that the harvest is plentiful and that you are currently working in incredible ways in our lives and around the world. And we simply ask that we be caught up in your purposes for your glory and for our own good and the good of the nations. Please, Holy Spirit, because of the love of the Father, confront our deep places of selfishness And because of love, also help us to think beyond our finite minds. 
I think we look at our lives and we say, well, this is what I'm doing. How could God ever use this? But you're so much bigger than that. Would you please give us a vision for your purposes in and through our lives? Would you please help us as your people to recapture a sense of sentness and live for your glory wherever we are? We confess that we need help with that. Thank you that you forgive sins for our sins are many. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the power and the person of the Holy Spirit who is in us and comes upon us that we might live for the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, in the days to come. In Jesus' name.